Hey, welcome to the Lyric House Church podcast. Our mission is to host a house for him. Join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for our live service. Make sure to check out our Facebook page for details about upcoming events and information on our small groups that meet throughout the week. Thank you for being part of our broader community, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. <sighs> How long ago did we meet? Four years ago? Yeah. 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 Hey, let me get you a microphone. Yeah. Yeah, we. Four or five years ago when we met? Yeah, 2019. 19? Yeah. When we moved here. Yeah, before no, COVID. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, we were all going to a different church, and we saw each other from across the room, and it was almost like a magnet, you yeah. know, where you knew. Oh, this is uh, my person. You know, this is this is my tribe. You know, <laughs> these right. are our people. They understand where we're coming from. They, you know, had a lot of commonalities. And yeah, so. isn't it amazing how God does that? It's like we're in tune, kind of like how you tune a guitar string or an instrument. Yeah, it's fascinating <sighs> when you get two um, instruments that are tuned the same way. If one vibrates, the other will begin to vibrate, even if it's never been plucked. Mm. Wow. Because the, the frequencies begin to play off of each other. So yeah. resonance, exactly. it's called resonance. Yep. Yep. <laughs> do you guys want some stools or anything? Do you want to stand? What do you want to do? Yeah, well, you should. <laughs> I could probably use a stool. I'll get you a stool. <laughs> Let's get a couple. I'm old, you know. <laughs> I'm old and decrepit. <laughs> Oh, I'm getting old and decrepit. I'm just kidding. I'm not decrepit. We're not. I am old. <laughs> what she said. And okay. And I'm counting on Psalms 92, where it says that we Thanks, will sir. still be producing fruit, you know, in our old age. And so that's what I'm counting on. <laughs> Say be fruity, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for every day, Lord, that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to accomplish the things that is in your pleasure to do. Lord, we ask that you would be with us today, all of us. Open our ears and our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we might receive from you the things that are truth. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would carry um, the message today, Lord, into the hearts of everyone here, including ourselves, Lord, mm -hmm. by the wings of your spirit, Lord. We just ask your spirit to come now in Jesus' name. We've been asked to talk today about generosity. That's a cool subject because we have some wonderful examples throughout the scriptures of that. Um, and in our lives. In our <laughs> lives, yeah. Um, in the last couple of decades especially, and even before, I guess, there's if you look at movies and the social things of, the, of our culture, a lot of movies and stories have been about the identity of 
someone who's trying to seek their identity, first of all, figure out what in the world that is, and the discovery of who they are, and the discovery of their purpose, and, and whose they are. If you look at Lord of the Rings, and a whole bunch, there's just a gob of movies. King Arthur, there's just tons of stories, and even throughout history of um, people looking to find and identify with their, their purpose and their identity. And in today's society, I really don't have to go there very far for us to understand that there's a real lack of identity. There's a real identity crisis. People don't know who they are, and so they go looking for make-believe stuff. They go looking for um, whatever feels good to them at the moment, something, anything new and radical, it seems like. Um, so in contrast to that, I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, my past, which I think is a good picture of identity. I grew up in a family. My, my dad was a, an intimidating large man with a temper. And he was pretty blunt, mm -hmm. but he was loving at home. You know, he, was, he was my dad. I mean, I, I, I loved that. I loved being, hanging out with him and doing stuff. I, I knew new other dad. You know, so everything about him was dad. And um, so the history of growing up through 18 years old, I got a lot of exposure to his culture that he grew up in during the Depression. And he ran a meatpacking plant in Iowa. And at this plant, when he got hired onto this plant, uh, this was a very, very rough place to work. I mean, as far as the, the people who worked there. First of all, consider standing all day in, in blood, manure, and fat. Uh, you'd, it would take a, a particular kind of person who would be willing to do that. And uh, a lot of the people that worked at his plant were just out of the penitentiary, uh, from the wrong side of the tracks, if you will, according to society. And when he went to work there, the two guys that owned the plant were Les and Mort Bookie. They're very connected Jewish people. And uh, when he was hired on there, they were afraid to walk out into the plant because people would threaten them. They would boo. The guy that, saved, that sent you your paycheck, they would boo and say obscenities to and all kinds of crazy Things. They, would, they would run up and act like they were going to smack them. So these guys were afraid to go out on the floor. The guys that owned the plant, and they killed a thousand head of cattle beef a day. So this was a big place, big operation. 120 guys worked on the kill floor alone. So I get out of high school. I'm 18 years old, going to probably go to college. My dad got me a job there. Before that time, I'd only worked at like a, a candy warehouse where I lifted boxes and put stuff up on a shelf and all that kind of stuff. And so now I'm in with the big boys. I weigh about a buck 60, and there's a bunch of huge guys that, I mean, back in those days, you can only imagine how wild and crazy these guys were. I mean, there were a lot of them. For seriously, were, my dad gave them a chance to get out of penitentiary and go to work there. So first day, he walks into the plant, and 
he's with the, the, he said, yeah, you guys come with me. He says, no, we don't really want to go out there, the owners. And he said, no, no, you got to go out there with me. So we walked out into the middle of the kill floor. They all stopped what they were doing, and they all gathered around a big circle. There's like a hundred guys. And they started yelling stuff at him. And one guy even ran up to my dad and act like he was going to punch him in the face. My dad goes, you're fired. Get out. Who's next? <laughs> that kind of shocked the whole deal. And when he got kind of upset, he'd get all red in the face. The veins would stand out in his <laughs> neck. I mean, he was a pretty intimidating guy. He made a believer out of all of them. And he could back up his words. He was a boxer in the Navy and heavyweight. Uh, he was a pretty formidable guy. He was big when he was 92. So that was my dad. Well, I go to work there. I'm 18 years old, never seen anything like this before in my life. I toured the plant. But everybody in there was afraid of my dad in a healthy way. He wasn't mean. They all said he was very, very fair, but he was a hard man. Uh, you just didn't cross him. So I went to work there. I, went, I worked there five summers during college, and then I worked there for a year after that on the kill floor, standing in blood and guts and fat and manure that you would have to wash off before you even would a break. So who I was was the college boy. And back in 1970, not everybody went to college. Um, but that was, the college boys were kind of a, like a, a preppy sort in the eyes of, of a lot of the working class. So what I had stacked on me that I had no idea I was coming into was I was the boss's son who they all feared. But I was also the guy that had an advantage they didn't have, and they were mad at me about it. And with all of that, I had to live up to my dad's standards as far as I could not be, I could not be an unmodeled employee by any stretch. I had to be the guy that did everything right, everything by the book, because it would come back on my dad, and I would hear about it at home. And I had heard about it at home before. <laughs> um, so with all of that being said, it's kind of a picture of who, in a, in a way, of, of who our Heavenly Father is. He's the guy that runs the plant. Mm -hmm. He has the, the power of life and death. He can fire at will. He can give people chances and second chances and all kinds of things. So... In talking about all, that's kind of where we that's kind of where we come from, in the generosity thing. Um, we have to kind of establish who we are. Well, the Bible says we're a kingdom of priests. Um, it's kind of intriguing to when you think about the kingdom of priests. So, what does all that mean? Um, First Peter, second, uh, second chapter nine, says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. If that's the case, then what does that mean? We're a chosen people. 
Um, we've been handpicked by God to do his works through our lives. We did not pick ourselves and we did not choose this life. Jesus chose us. But we have to agree with him if we want to accept the job. Uh, we have to say yes to his job offer, to be a part of his, of his family, of his kingdom of priests. Um, there have been princes and princesses that have not assumed their, their role or even realized who they are. And they live in the royal household and get the benefits, but didn't choose to go about their father's business. And um, they could care less about what he wants. And we kind of named them royal moochers. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much. I'm sure we've all encountered those people. I've been one, <laughs> you know, it turned, because I want all of the benefits of his kingdom. But I don't want to give myself in his service. So when you're talking about a royal priesthood, okay, so you have to go back to Leviticus, and I know Leviticus is a very hard book to read <laughs> and to understand because it seems like it's rule after rule and all of these strange customs that the, um, the Levites were required to perform. They were required to dress a certain way. They were quite, I mean, the whole Jewish um, Israelite nation was required to even abstain from eating certain things. They were required to um, follow rules, you know, just in just about every aspect of their life. And so when you're reading Leviticus, you're going, I, don't, I can't relate, you know, because we just don't have those kinds of rules in our lives. Um, but if you were to look at it, and, and really dig into what the Levites were truly doing is that they were stewarding the presence of God. Every single aspect of their life had to point to the fact that our God is greater than any other God's little g because you have to realize they were coming out of Egypt. Egypt had a lot of little gods. I mean, when you look back into um, the Egyptian history, they worshiped just about everything. And so when the Jews were coming out of Egypt, they had to basically remove all of that false worship and replace it with godly worship. And so God had to give them rules just basically said, how are you going to live your life that will be different than everybody else around you? You know, you have to steward my presence. You have to not only build the tabernacle, and every single part of the tabernacle spoke to a specific thing, but not only that, the very clothing that the priests wore would speak to different things. They had tassels on their, their garments that would remind them to pray. They would put um, bracelets around their arms that had the word written on it. Every single part of their life had to be pointing to God. They were stewarding the presence. And so that's what it means to be a priest. And so just like what he was reading, 
if we are a royal priesthood, we have a responsibility. We are carrying something very precious. And we have to show the world that our God is different than any other God in our lives. So um, you can study Leviticus and, and look at the symbolism and um, all of the, the different things. And it's, it's fascinating, but I think it would probably take 10 years to, to explore all of that. And I think a lot of it is lost to, the, to history because some of the things that um, it talks about in there, we would have no cultural reference for. We were going, what? What was that for? Um, a lot of the rules, we were going, well, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it in this modern culture. But if we were able to, you would realize that it was very intentional. God was showing us, even before Jesus, that he wanted to be different than any other God, but it was through his people that we were going to do that. You know, and of course, you know, the Israelites, just like us in our daily lives, they failed a lot, you know. They didn't always show him holy, and that's what it means. You know, holy means different. Set us, you know, set apart. Just different. We are not like the culture. Um, so in our words, our actions, our deeds, our clothing, our behaviors, everything in our lives should be different than the culture. You know, and, and you don't have to be weird about it. You know, I think some people go to the weird extreme, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I've, I've seen weird, um, but, but, but when you walk into a room, you know, they should be able to say and say, oh, there's just something different about them. And when, when our daughters were dating, I didn't mean to tell this story, but when, um, <laughs> <laughs> the other cheetah. The other daughters. <laughs> But when our daughters were dating, um, I had a conversation, I think it was actually with Casey, so I had a conversation about um, these guys that would pursue her and would be, want to be with her, but they, it was not for good intentions. And she was at a, a stage in her life that she wasn't, she didn't know her identity, and so this um, pursuit, you know, kind of met a need in a way, but it was a fleshly, kind of thing, and, um, but she had been, she was saved. She knew Jesus, but it was still very, very much in its infancy. And so um, we would talk about, and I would tell her, I says, so let's just consider this. What those guys are pursuing in you, they think it's because of your body, your appearance, your beauty, but it's really just the presence of Jesus. And I had to, you know, lead her in, in such a way that, um, so that she would understand that she is stewarding the presence of Jesus, and that is what people are attracted to. I mean, she was beautiful. She had charisma. She had all of these things. But people really needed the Jesus within her. And so, um, you know, she had to learn how to, you know, steward his presence and, and realize and use wisdom in who was really pursuing her in the person that she was and who was just really 
needing Jesus in that moment. And she, and she actually did it very well. I was, I was proud of her. Um, but then, you know, so we have the priesthood side, but he calls us a royal priesthood. So what about royalty? You know, when you think about it, you have to, you have to imagine yourself that all of a sudden you're told that you are the son or daughter of a king. You are not the son or daughter of a, of a fleshly, earthly, um, fallible, you know, uh, person that can make mistakes. You're, you're the son or the daughter of the king. And just like in Gary's, you know, you're the son or the daughter of the boss. And so you have to assume that identity. And so when you're thinking about that and, and considering yourself as a son or a daughter of the king, don't you think you have responsibilities? You know, aren't you supposed to be about your father's business? It's, it's, it comes down to that. You know, you can be a royal moocher, but you can't live like that for long. And just like what Lisa was talking about this morning with the, the joy that comes in the um, being in the presence, it's, it's, it's the joy that comes of going before your king and saying, my loyalty is entirely yours. I am entirely loyal to you. I am here to serve you. I am here to do your will. And so if you imagine yourself, you know, Americans have a hard time thinking about being in the presence of a king because we don't have kings here. But we've seen enough in movies and everything. You can imagine yourself. There is a different weightiness that comes from being in the throne room and bowing before the king and saying, you know, everything that I have is yours. I, I pledge my life and my possessions to you. Everything I have is yours. Just tell me where to go. Tell me what to say. Tell me what to do. Give me my assignment for the day. And so when you spend that time in the in, in, the, in the morning, usually, when you spend that time in the presence of the king, you, you have to have that heart that just says, interrupt my day. I know I have to go to work today, and I know I'm going to interact with my boss. And if, anyway, I won't go there. But <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, so I know I'm going to have to interact with my boss, so please... Holy Spirit, I give you permission to interrupt my day in, in my tasks, in my um, things that I know I'm supposed to get done so that I can see what you want me to do. What is your mission for my life for today? You know, so it's a matter of, um, so if you imagine yourself in a kingdom, we live in a very fallen world. And... Um, so the kingdom that we live in is 
is full of light and joy and peace, but he calls us to go into the darkness, to be that light and joy and peace in the dark places. You know, that's sometimes our mission, and it becomes very hard, but see, we can always run back to the throne room anytime we get into trouble. You know, and even if we fail at our mission, it's okay because we can still go back and be with Jesus, our King. And so when you're thinking of it, royal priesthood, <laughs> we are the ones that get to go on the adventures. We have a quest. <laughs> you know, I love Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> because. The Lord of the Rings, you know, it was, it was everybody working together to get something accomplished. And so when we um, assume this identity and not be a royal moocher anymore, but say, give me my mission, then we get to go on adventures. And that's where the fun is. You know, that's where the joy is. Throughout the Bible, one thing is really a common theme throughout the whole thing. God loves man, mankind, created mankind, but he wants to partner with man. He doesn't want to do it all himself. He doesn't want to. He can. It's not that he can't, but his greatest joy is to use us as imperfect beings that are willing to lay down our lives in and an answer of the call to do what he wants to do. Um, it's a concept called tikkum olam. It's a Hebrew concept. Uh, many of my Jewish friends know this. Um, tikkum olam means, number one, to partner with God. It also means to make the mundane holy. There's nothing more mundane than a lot of mindless jobs that we have to do to earn a paycheck to put food on the table to all the things that, you know, come with that. Um, but right from the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He created all the animals. And then he, he wanted to partner with, with man right away. And he, so he brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. He wanted to be part, he wanted to party. God, God supplies the can-do. Man supplies the I'll do that. I'll, I will do. But one without the other doesn't is not the complete picture because God is the author of Tikkun Olam. Make the mundane holy, and all of it is worship. It's all worship. Laying down what we want in in favor of what God wants is worship. It's one of the key key parts of worship. Um, so in, in the Tikkun Olam thing, um, uh, what does that look like for us? Well, it could be a mother taking care of her kids. It's not necessarily the first thing that she wants to do all day is to you know, give, either give up a career or do all the things that she wants to be able to do. She has, to, she has some responsibilities, and, and fathers as well. Um, a dad playing catch with his kids. That's part of making the mundane holy. Because what you're doing when you do that, 
is you're giving you're giving your kid time with you, which is a picture of what God wants to do with us. Um, an office worker of typing an email for her boss, if she's doing it unto the Lord, as if she's doing it unto the Lord, or he, um, it's a form of worship, and it's taken on. A mechanic changing someone's oil, um, flipping the room after church, putting the seats up, doing the stuff that it takes to do to have church. Um, it all becomes worship because we offer our time, energy, and resources to glorify God. It, it is not necessarily always a conscious thing, but if we become a lifestyle of that, we don't have to think about it anymore. It's just who we are. Um, that gets to be huge. Um, being about our Father's business in every pursuit. And it could be at your workplace, in your social circles, uh, to go to unknown lands and speak to people you don't know. Um, all of it is laying, it, laying ourselves down. And believe me, we're going somewhere with this. <laughs> this is not just a meandering story. Um, you want to go ahead with the mm -hmm. next part? Um, walking as a member of the royal priesthood comes with responsibility, and I talked about that just a minute ago. But as you ma mature and grow in your walk with the Lord, um, he begins to be able to trust you with greater and greater because he's given you little and then he'll give you more because you can be trusted with his work. And he will assign you tasks to right the wrongs in the world. Um, he will have you heal the sick to deliver the oppressed, um, to see and meet the needs of the people that he wants you to see. I mean, he'll, he'll give you that responsibility and as it, it's all of as a member of the royal priesthood, but it, it all stems from your relationship with him. You know, you have to enter the throne room and ask for your task for the day. And it might be a little thing to begin with until he sees that you can be trusted with more. Um, so if, if we're stewarding the presence, we have to talk about who is God. What is this presence that we're stewarding? And we can go into <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks talking about the attributes and the characteristics of God because he's, he's infinitely unique and he is just bigger than our comprehension at times. But one characteristic, just one, is that he's a generous God. You know, John 3.16, because he loved the world, he gave. And the rest of that, he gave his only son. And so um, there's another thing that I found just this morning, and I'll have to see if I can find it again. Um, okay. This will tie into something else we'll speak about in just a minute, but this generous God who supplies abundant seed for the farmer, which becomes bread for our meals. So he, plies, he supplies the seed, it becomes the bread for our meals. Um, he is even more extravagant towards you 
So he supplies the seed to the farmer, but he's even more extravagant to his royal priesthood, his chosen people, the ones that he's handpicked. And if you're sitting in the room and you have Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have been chosen. There is no way to escape it. But it's also an invitation to go on the greatest adventure of your life. And so first he supplies every need plus more. So when you, th uh, when you think about the loaves and fishes, and I'll get to that story in just a minute, but when you think about the loaves of fishes, he supplied the need of the people through five loaves or five fish and two, well, I get it confused. Anyway, it was loaves and fishes. It was fish and loaves, yeah. But, but there were 5,000 men, and they think that it could be well between 15 and 20,000 people because they only counted the men. So five loaves and two fishes fed that many people? Okay, that's a miracle. Plus right? there's nine baskets left over or something like that. Yeah, right. plus. <laughs> so he provides what you need plus. So what is that plus? That plus is the seed that you are to sow. Okay? So let's, let's just step back. So if God is generous, and this is the God that we serve, then in order to represent him well, represent our boss well, then we have to be generous. Right? But it also means, you know, we have to be all the other attributes of God. And so when you really want to figure out your identity, just look at God and figure out his attributes, and you can find your identity in all of that. Okay? So we, in, in our responsibility as a royal priesthood, one of our roles is to distribute his resources, the king's resources, to the people who need it. That goes back to partnership. I mean, God can, God can give and just, you know, drop manna from heaven if he wants to, but he likes to partner with us to give it out for on his behalf. And so he gives you his needs, and then he gives you more so that you have more to give out on his behalf. And so you are the steward, not only of his presence, but also of his resources. You are the manager of the things he's asked you to distribute to his people. So our God is a generous God, and we are to be replicates of him in every single way. So when you're thinking about generosity, and it, I was just starting to look through the Bible of all of the times that it mentions generosity, and it's just like, Whoa, I am, I'm not going to unload all of that on you guys to this morning, but you should you just do a word search on the word generous or generosity, and it will just amaze you, but it also shows you a picture of who God is, you know. Um, so the things that we are supposed to be generous with is our time. So we're not talking about just money. You know, this isn't just about money. It's supposed to be our time, any resource that we have, our 
social contacts. I just, I, I met somebody a few months ago that was a phlebotomist, and, and so I was talking to Kim yesterday, and she was talking about her um, wanting to retire in a couple of years, and she wants, and we, so we we're just talking, and I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know, what was that girl's name? And so it was a person that had a business that was a traveling phlebotomist that would go to people to draw blood, and um, she was able to control her own schedule and everything, and so it was just like, okay, well, I need to give that to Kim because it does me no good to know this person that's a phlebotomist that draws blood, you know, because I met her one time. But sh that was one of the resources that I had in my phone that I can give to another person that might open up a door for her, you know, to meet some needs in her life in the future. So your social contacts are a resource. You know, you, you are to be the connector of people who need to know each other. Um, you know, we have to be generous with our energy. We have to be generous with our wisdom. We have to be generous even with our material possessions. And we have to be generous with our talents and our abilities. So there's just a ton of different things that we can look at when you're looking at generosity. Yes, when you're doing it for the kingdom, it's joyful. That's what Lisa said. <laughs> so how do you know if God wants you to give something that you have? It's so simple. When I, when I realized this, it was just like, oh, <laughs> you know, you're speaking. Okay, God, I'm, I'm acting like a kindergartner, you know. Um, basically, he shows you a need. Simple as that. He shows you a need. And then the second thing, which is just as important, is you have in your hand what that person needs. That's all you, that's all you need to know about generosity is if you see a need and you have it in your hand, then you give it. So um, Proverbs uh, speaks of this. It says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it, it is in your power to act do not say to your neighbor come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you another version says why do you withhold money when you have it in your pocket you know some people say we used to live in um, Nashville, and we were very involved with the homeless community there. And it, it was much bigger, but it was a different culture there. And, you know, there would be these questions going back and, back and forth. Do you give to the homeless? And, you know, and they just go get alcohol or drugs or anything? Or do you withhold with, you know, a sense of judgment and you're not wanting to participate in their sin? You know, so there was a whole um, going back and forth. But somebody once told us that says, we are only responsible for what we do. If he says to give, you give. They are responsible for what they do with your gift. And so when you look at it that way, you know, sometimes you can um, be a blessing to somebody that they just recognize that this $5 bill that they just received is different than every other $5 bill. 
just because of the presence that you carry. And since it came through you as a member of the royal priesthood, it's going to bless somebody in a different way than somebody else's $5 bill. Um, so, and we can't assume that what we have is too small or too insignificant. So let's just go back quickly. So in Exodus 4.2, the Lord asked Moses, what is that in your hand? What did Moses say? Yeah. He had a staff. He basically had a stick in his hand. But what did God do with that stick in partnership with Moses? Okay. Moses parted the Red Sea. You know, of course, it was God's power coming through a stick, of all things. But he parted the Red Sea. At one time, Moses took this stick and struck a rock, and water came out and was able to um, allay the thirst of, like, 600,000 people. You know, I don't, I don't even remember the numbers, but it was, it was like, oh, it was a number. But it was a stick that struck a rock. But in the hands of somebody fully submitted to the king, it became a miracle. Um, so there was also a, a, a widow in 1 Kings 17 that didn't have anything but some flour and some oil. And Elijah came to her and basically said, and you can read this in uh, 1 Kings 17, like I said, you can read this, but he basically came to her and said, give me some water first of all. And so she went to, was going to go give him some water. And he goes, and, oh, by the way, um, why don't you just make me some, a biscuit? You know, I'm hungry. Make me a biscuit. And she goes, all I have is, is just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. You know, and um, we were just going to go, I was just going to go home and make some biscuits for me and my son, and then we were going to die because this is all we have left. So, but then Elijah told her, because of her willingness to give what little she had, he says, until this famine's over, because they were in the middle of a famine, it hadn't rained for a long time, he says, until this famine's over, your flour will never run out and your oil will never run out. And so, just because she was able to give that little, you know, and it was, it was the, she had her needs met plus, so that was the plus, she had extra, but because she was willing to do that, she was able to feed her family for however long that famine lasted. I think that, th it didn't rain for three and a half years at one point, so who knows how long that really was, but she was willing to give her, her, her more, her extra. And then again, loaves and fishes. All they had was, you know, that wasn't going to be enough to feed one man, much less, you know, 5,000. So, so anything in our hand, if God instructs us to use it in partnership with him, it can be turned into a miracle. That's pretty exciting. 
about giving, this, you, many of you probably heard this example before, but you know how we, we tend to get, well, it's down to the end of the month, and as there's, there's an old song goes, there's too much month at the end of the money. <laughs> and so we tend to hold on to things, hold on to that, what we got, because we gotta make it last. Mm -hmm. So if I got whatever money I got left and I put it in my hand and I'm holding on to it, mm -hmm. Can you put anything in my hand? <laughs> I, you can't put, I can't receive anything. I can't receive anything with my hand is closed. But if I open up my hand to give, I can also receive. It's a basic principle that God created. Um, so there's different ways of being generous. Um, I'm going to tell you some stories mm -hmm. that are true stories from us. Um, and it was, it was some of the greatest blessings for us ever. In Nashville, we went to church for a while. Bob Jones first. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Long ago, our kids were little. We, not all of them were born yet. Lisa was born and, and uh, Kelly. And Bob Jones was this prophetic guy of a long time ago. He, uh, he said, me and the missus want to take you out for lunch today after church. <laughs> uh, I'm going to break the spirit of poverty off you. <laughs> well, I've been to Bob Jones's house, and he didn't have two nickels to rub together back in those <laughs> days. He was poor as church mouse. He, um, but he didn't have any money, but he'd gotten paid from something. He says, I'm going to take you guys out for lunch on Sunday dinner. So he took us to first cafeteria, which was a in those days, a pretty nice place to eat. It was kind of like a, for us. a buffet <laughs> for us. Yeah, it was better than McDonald's. <laughs> and so we didn't have much then either. I mean, uh, I was a worship leader at this church, uh, making 500 bucks a month. You know, it was, it was a stipend, and I was doing like <laughs> 40 hours a week pretty much. <laughs> so we were pretty, pretty tight with money back in those days. So he took us out to this cafeteria and he just prayed over us. And so over time, uh, we began to see, we began to try giving and try, um, try to do some things that were outside our comfort zones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a buffet, all you could eat buffet. Yeah, it was a, it was a picture. Mm -hmm. So, in Nashville, we went to church for a while in this industrial zone of the city. And uh, it was a fairly new church. It was a, it was a church plant. And uh, one of the guys that was faithful to attend this church, his name was Eric. He was a homeless guy. He, come to find out, he'd been on the streets for six years. Uh, he used to work. He just kind of fell off into... He said he made a series of bad decisions and ended up on the street. He'd been living there for six years. So noticing him every week, I mean, he was a really interesting guy. I mean, he, he was pretty articulate. He uh, always carried his Bible around in a worn out plastic bag full of this stuff. And he'd come to church every Sunday and he'd sit up on the front row. And he'd, uh, he was like the most animated worshiper you could ever see. And uh, sometimes, you know, in taking up the collection, mm -hmm. 
you would see him put a dollar bill in the in the, the bucket as he went by. And sometimes you'd see him put a Wendy's gift card because he would go to Wendy's, which was about a block and a half away from the church, and ask if he could pick up their lot, pick up all the trash in their lot, and they couldn't pay him cash because of the laws and stuff, but they could give him a gift card. So he'd use the gift card. Well, he'd use part of the gift card and then put, put whatever's left on the gift card, he'd just put it in the, in the basket. So that, that made a real impression on me. So we got to know Eric pretty well. We got to talking to him. And, mm-hmm. and so you know, not everyone that you meet that you're going to help or bless is the picture of odorific wonderments. <laughs> 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 this boy had not bathed in a long time, and he stunk <laughs> to high heaven. Sweet guy, you know. So I said, well, Eric... Do you want to be homeless? No, I'm tired of being homeless. Mm-hmm. I said, well, did you ever, well, how old are you? Said, I'm 61 years old. I said, well, huh, did you ever work? You ever work, have a job? I said, oh, yeah, I had a job. I worked a long time. Well, did you pay into Social Security and stuff like that? Yeah, I'm sure I did. So I said, well, why don't you get a job? He said, well, I can't get a job. And this, this was an eye-opener to me. I can't get a job because I do not have any ID. Don't have a birth certificate, I don't have a social security card, and I don't have a driver's license with a picture ID. That's he the three things you have to have to get a job. He had lost it somewhere lost it. in his some. homeless situation. He had lost it, so he didn't have it anymore. So I said, well, that's what it would take to get you a job. I said, yeah. Well, what if we could help you get that? Well, that would be great. But I don't, you know, he doesn't have a car. He can't drive anywhere. This is in Nashville. So I said, well, what if we could try to help you get your ID and stuff? So what would it take to do that? Where were you born? Like, born in Indiana. So there's a gal that we knew that also attended the church there that, had, that was a director of a homeless men's facility. And uh, she said, well, I, I, I'll write a letter. I'll write a letter, and I'll even pay for the on my letterhead and pay for the uh, uh, copy of this birth certificate. So we're okay, yeah, let's do that. So time goes on, we sent the letter off. Time goes on, you know, every day, every Sunday we'd meet up and I'd give him a few bucks, you know, to get him partway through the week at least. Um, so it took a long time to get that, but we got to be friends over time and I learned a lot of things talking to him. But we finally got that in the mail. So then we went down to the Social Security office. They said, well, I can't give you that until, no, we went to the driver's license office to get a picture of driver, or picture ID. I can't give you that unless you have a Social Security card. So we went down to the Social Security office. You know, these are all, all involved trips with me with the window down. <laughs> His side, I <laughs> window down because it was all I could do to stay in the car, you know, <laughs> trying not to be offensive to him. And so we sat in there. And I mean, that's a good way to clear out a Social Security office is go in with a homeless guy and sit <laughs> down anywhere. I mean, people will move. <laughs> so we finally got him a, we got him a driver's license and we got him a Social Security card. And the day we walked out of the driver's license bureau, because I had to go in and explain, I had to go with him every place we went and explain why we were doing this. And that once you explained that, 
Everybody's like, well, yeah, that's a great idea. You're going to get him off the street, and we're going to get him a job and all that kind of stuff. I'll do this. So went took him to the Social Security office, and he got, come to find out, he was eligible when he was 62 to get $670 a month. But he didn't have a bank account. <laughs> Couldn't cash a check. And it wouldn't be safe for him to carry that kind of cash around anyway. So I took him to SunTrust Bank, and I went in and I talked to the manager, and I said, well, this is against the rules. He, where has he had a bank account before? Well, yeah, I have a bank account. You can't get a bank account. Do you know that without having a bank account before? <laughs> so Or an address. Or an address. <laughs> so I gave him our, we gave him our house as an address, and we, we gave him, uh, you know, I had to open up a bank account so he could get, his direct deposits from Social Security in the bank account, so I had to put a hundred bucks in his account because that's you know, what it took to open the account, you know. But the bank manager says we never do this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna bend over backwards this time. I'm gonna help the guys out because I want to see this go. So more and more people are on the bandwagon. So we got him there, and I mean to tell you, when we walked out of the place, when he had his picture ID, he jumped up in the air. nothing like it we were totally blessed because you could help a guy that could never pay you back ever and even after we moved here and we went back for a visit he saw us and he fell to his knees and he goes I didn't think I'd ever get to see you guys again he says you changed my life you know but in our hearts we were going thank you God for letting us partner with you because that was a seed that we were suddenly seeing the vine growing. Yeah. Because of the seed that we planted. Mm -hmm. So, so many people had a hand in that. Mm -hmm. And they they were, you know, all, everybody was sowing into this guy. Everybody was sowing into the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't that we were that great of people. <laughs> we just kind of got involved in it and pretty soon we were consumed by it because of the need was great and everybody was ready to jump on board with us so that being said um, we thought we started finding other ways other ways to help people there were really wasn't really we didn't sit out one day and go let's help people mm -hmm. we're in a restaurant and there, we'd go to this we go to a lot of the same restaurants over and over again because we were close to our house we intentionally yeah. go to the same restaurants and ask for the same servers intentionally yeah. there's a little gal in there her name was Sierra and she had three kids and mm -hmm. no husband they're all three kids with different baby daddies and she was she was in rough shape but she worked at this restaurant she mm -hmm. opened every every day she opened at 5:30 in the morning and she would bring her kids up there and pass her kids up to her mom and her mom would take the kids home watch them while she worked so one morning she gets there and she puts the keys to her car on her mom's uh, trunk lid and passing the kids off and stuff well her mom took off driving across the road and this was on a highway and she drove across the highway and the kids the keys slid off the back of the of the car and landed in the middle of the highway. And along came a truck and ran over. Well, this was a key fob. And you all know about key fobs. 
they're not real cheap to replace. Well, I, she showed me this key fob. I mean, this thing is mangled bad. I said, so she's at work. This is like nine o'clock in the morning. I said, well, why don't you give me them things and let me see what, what somebody will do. I'll, I'll go see if I can go to the dealership and find out what it would take. Because that's the only way she could start or get in the car was the key fob. No key was going to work to do anything. So went down there, went $360 to do for a key fob. I said, really? Let me call, we flipped houses when we were in Nashville. I had, I had a locksmith on my speed dial. <coughs> I called him a locksmith. He said, well, I don't really work on those kind of cars, but I got a buddy in White House that does. Here's his number. Call him, tell him I told you this. I told you to call him and, and he'd help you out. White House was a town. It was a little house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the north part of Nashville. <laughs> so I, I called the guy up and said, yeah, I'll meet you over at the parking lot tomorrow, this afternoon about 1 o'clock. I said, all right. Get over there, and he, he says uh, he could do it. He could plug the thing in and program the thing right on his in his van. And it was going to be like 160 bucks. So well, that's a whole lot better than 360 dollars. So I just went and we did it. And uh, so after he drove off, I said to Kim, I said, "Well, so we never talked about money on this thing. Mm -hmm. Should we should we just pay for it, or what? She ain't going to pay for it." Mm -hmm. And then I heard this clear voice in, the, in my head said, you can't outgive me. Okay, you don't have to yell. <laughs> so we gave her those keys, and she said, well, how much do I use? You don't know, it's nothing. And she started crying. And from that moment on, we had a whole lot of influence in her life. Mm -hmm. We had authority in her life because we were willing to invest in her. Didn't want nothing back. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We used to go to a lot of places in Nashville, about the service, tell them about yeah. going to Bob Evans. <laughs> we, we had a small group that would meet at Bob Evans once a month for on a Saturday morning, so we would have breakfast with a whole bunch of people. And there was this one server named Scott, and we had him you know, a few times, but then um, we just, seemed to get him all the time. It wasn't like intentional in that p particular moment. But um, we, we got him all the time and he just loves serving us. One of the reasons that he loves serving us is because we tipped well. And that is also a thing that you can do as a member of the Royal Priesthood is to make sure that you're tipping your servers well. Because you're representing a generous God and so, you know, in the server world, it is well known that you don't want to work on Sundays on the after church crowd because you won't make any money. Yep. And, and everybody's rude. And, everybody's rude. <laughs> and so how are we representing God in that? You know, so um, if you're going to go out to eat and there is a, a tip required, just make sure that you have enough to, to go out to eat to tip well. If you don't, then choose something a little bit less expensive, you know, to get something to eat. But, you know, you have to, you have to realize that you're representing God. So um, that was one of the reasons that he wanted to serve us is because he knew this group was going to tip him well. He's usually 10 to 12 people. But the other thing that really um, gave us influence in his life is he had... He had tattoos 
on his arms. And I was going, oh, there's got to be a story. Because the tattoo was made to appear like skin folding back. And then there was words underneath the skin, like loyalty, honesty, love, trust, you know, just all of these really good qualities. And it was coming, it looked like it was coming out of his skin. I go, okay, what's up th with this tattoo? He says, what you don't see is I got these tattoos to cover up the cigarette burns I got when I was a little boy from my dad. And he says, I decided that that wasn't my identity, that I had something else underneath my skin that I was going to allow to come out in spite of the visible scars. And so he had to have a representation of who he really was, even in his tattoos. But just getting to know him as a person and asking him questions about his tattoo was a just a, a sharing. It was a generosity of spirit. We wanted to hear his story. And we, we ended up praying with him. And we ended up, you know, just doing all kinds of things. And he would specifically change his schedule. If he wasn't scheduled on the, on the Saturday that we were supposed to be there, he would specifically change his schedule so that he could come to be in the presence. Because what he was getting was something more than what we as people could offer. We were showing him the very presence of God because we carry it. It's in us. And so um, there is uh, another story <laughs> we didn't put on our list, but it might relate to some of you guys. Um, how many of you know the Stevens? AJ Stevens, Dina, Deanna? used to live here in the late 90s, 2000s. AJ um, graduated with Lisa in 2006. Um, and Dina and Deanna, and then they have another brother named Jesse. They had a horrible home life. Um, if I, I, I won't go into all of their details. But um, Lisa and AJ were really close when they were 12 years old. I mean, as close as two 12-year-olds can be. And AJ would hang around our house, and he would bring his sisters and his brother with him. And um, <laughs> there would be many mornings. I would wake up early, and I'd come out, and I'd have to step over a bunch of kids in the living room that decided to spend the night. And, um, but when I got to know their story, it was just like, okay, this is, this is something more than what we are, you know, just offering. They would end up spending most of the summers with us, which meant they spent the night. They would go home every once in a while and check in with their parents, but they would um, spend the summers basically with us for two or three summers in a row. They ended up having to go into the foster system and... Um, you know, w they would eat dinners with us, we would feed them, we would do just do all kinds of things because, you know, we didn't have the space for four extra kids in a 1,200-square-foot home, but... So we had a house that didn't <laughs> have drywall on the walls. Yeah, we yeah. we were too poor to buy the drywall. There, there's that. We were, we were in a very, very poor situation, but we had a living room floor that they could sleep on, but we also had a sense of family that they did not have. So we could be a family 
to these kids. Well, fast forward. AJ went to college, is uh, graduated. Now he's a principal at Sherwood School. Um, Dina, one of the twins, um, went to school, became an RN. And um, so she, te she teaches now. Deanna teaches in nursing. Okay. And Deanna grew up, went to school, became a social worker, and she's married to an engineer and all this kind of thing. And it was just like, okay, so we didn't have anything but a living room floor and a sense of family. And we were able to help these kids become successful in their life. So our little more, we had our needs, you know, drywall's not a need, you know, it was a want. But we had our needs met, but he gave us a little bit more. He gave us a living room floor and a sense of family that we could give to somebody else. And these kids, you know, in spite of all of the things that three out of four of the kids that went into a foster system are college graduates, I mean, that just doesn't happen. And they're, and they're successful in their families. They just, I mean, that's just like, I'm so proud of them. But it wasn't just us. It was the whole town of Holden at that time. I mean, it was just like the whole town seemed to adopt it, these kids. It was, it was really cool to see. So um, real quickly, let's just um, go over some of these suggestions just to walk this out. I mean, how do, how do you be practical in your giving? You can support a missionary. You know, your $5 a month put together with another, you know, 200 people that are given $5 a month can, can support a missionary. You know, YWAM and circuit writers have full-time missionaries you can support. Um, there is a very popular, um, not popular, but there is a, a phrase that we ran into it, that when you support a missionary, they're going into the pit, but you're holding the rope. And so when you realize that, you know, we're all in this together, you know, it, it's going to take all of us. Um, you know, you can give to this church. That's something, you know, <laughs> it pays yeah. the electric bill. You know, it keeps this church open so that you have a place to come to. Um, you can look for your needs. You can look for volunteers. Um, uh, look to volunteer. There's all kinds of um, homeless. There is um, Free Hot Soup Belton. I don't know if you know about them, but they provide food to the homeless once a week. Um, you can be a blessing. Uh, Another suggestion of that whole thing yep. is that, um, support this place. Mm -hmm. we, we love this place, and we call this family here, and we call it our church home for many of us. Um, one of the, because this is also a business, Jason and Tiffany would never say this, <laughs> but having been a business owner off and on most of my life, would, the first thing about a business owner is that that means you get paid last if there's any money left because you have to, you have to pay your employees, you have to pay all the utilities, you have to pay the rent, you have to pay whatever it is before you get anything. And so I know for a fact that they, they pour their own money from other businesses into this place, into this church, because there's not enough money coming in to pay the, all the bills here for this church. They don't do it begrudgingly. They do it cheerfully because they love what they're doing and they feel called by the Lord. But we could all help with that. 
if we can. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a couple bucks, mm-hmm. you know. Um, if you're grateful for ha- to have a roof over your head and a home, then show your gratefulness. Um, no judgment on how much or how little. Everybody has their own circumstances. Grace on everybody. But if you can, you'll be blessed if you give because it furthers the whole work here. The more resources we have in this place, the more outreach we can do. Mm-hmm. The more outreach we can do, the more people that will come here. The more people that will come here, the more people that will bring resources. And that just goes round and round and round. Um, but you got to start somewhere. So mm-hmm. just knowing that they're a blessing to us, mm-hmm. so we should in turn be a blessing to them as well. So let me just finish up with just a couple of scriptures on generosity. Um, in Second Corinthians 8, it says, and listen to this personally, take this in personally. For you have experienced the extravagant grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was infinitely rich, he impoverished himself for our sake, so that by his poverty we could become rich beyond measure. So here are my thoughts concerning this matter, and it's in your best interest. Since you made such a good start last year, both in the grace of giving and in your longing to give, you should finish what you started. You were so eager in your intentions to give, so go do it. Finish this act of worship according to your ability to give. For if the intention and desire are there, the size of the gift doesn't matter. Your gift is fully acceptable to God according to what you have, not what you don't have. I'm not saying this in order to ease someone else's load by overloading you, but as a matter of fair balance, your surplus could meet their need and their abundance may one day meet your need. This equal sharing of abundance will mean a fair balance. As it is written, the one who gathered much didn't have too much and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. 2 Corinthians 9, let giving flow from your heart, not from a sense of religious duty. Let it spring up freely from the joy of giving, all because God loves hilarious generosity. That kind of makes me think that he's laughing whenever we give. Um, And then there was one that, so King David said this one, instead I found the godly ones to be the generous ones who give freely to others. Their children are blessed and become a blessing. And so our whole lives, <laughs> it, it, we didn't realize this until this morning, just from reading this scripture, is that our whole lives have been lives trying to live out this characteristics of God of generosity. But we didn't realize until this morning that it's in our very kids' lives that we're seeing the seed. You know, 
we have four amazing kids following the Lord on their own. And so you as parents, if you can just be generous, even with your living room floor, your kids will be a blessing to others. So Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have blessed us greatly. And Lord, we just ask that you would pour out your spirit on our hearts and minds, that you would give us the things that you want us to give and help us to be open-handed about it, Lord. We bless your name, Lord, and we give you all honor and grace and glory in Jesus' name. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Lyric House Church podcast. We hope this message blessed you, and we encourage you to share with your family and friends. Remember, the gospel is good news, and good news is worth sharing. If you want to get involved or see what's happening next, make sure to follow us on social media. Until next week, we love you, and God bless.